This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, everybody. Um, on behalf of the Walter H. Cap Center, I would like to thank all of you all for being here on such a gorgeous Sunday afternoon. I um, appreciate you coming in and, and hearing more about this topic. Uh, part of the CAP Center's mission is to think about civic engagement and civic responsibility, and a free, honest press is the very foundation of that informed citizenship. And today, um, journalism has found itself in a difficult place in this new era of social media. Um, the CAP Center is pleased to present a seasoned journalist who can speak on this topic, Christina Bellantani. She will be presenting today the lecture, Figuring Out What is Real in an Era of Fake News, Why Journalism is More Important Now Than Ever. Christina Bellantani, a California native, by the way, and also a UC Berkeley graduate, has been the assistant managing editor for politics at the Los Angeles Times since August 2015. She came to the LA Times after serving as editor-in-chief of the Capitol Hill newspaper Roll Call, and Christina also worked for the nationally recognized television show, The PBS NewsHour, and she frequently appears on television and radio, including NPR, C-SPAN, MSNBC, Fox News, and HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. We're thrilled to have her today, especially since shortly after this lecture, she'll be zooming to LAX to fly off to Australia. So we are pleased she can find the time to present on this important and timely topic. So ladies and gentlemen, if you can please help me in welcoming Ms. Christina Bellantani. Good afternoon, and yes, thank you for uh, such not only a warm Santa Barbara welcome, but uh, the beautiful weather outside. Um, it is true, I'm headed to Australia right after this, but uh, this is a lot to be missing while we're over there. So uh, thank you so much for the, the invitation to give this talk. I want to take as many of your questions as possible as we can get to today. And I will tell you that uh, in addition to being about to head out on this trip, I am the mother of a two-month-old and uh, just finishing up maternity leave, so I might be a little rusty, maybe a little sleep deprived, uh, but I did get four hours last night, which is pretty great. So um, I also have to admit, I'm relieved to be doing something with the UC system. Uh, we are partners, the LA Times with USC, and I spend a lot of time with them and they're great. We do all kinds of great things, particularly the Festival of Books. If any of you do that, that's uh, in the last weekend of April. But I have to admit, it pains me a bit as a Berkeley grad to do everything with USC. So <laughs> go Bears and uh, go UCs. <clears throat> So last November, the morning of the election, I started my day with a documentary film crew at my home. They filmed me making my electoral college prediction. I said that Hillary Clinton would win, but not by as sizable of a margin as my campaign writers had predicted in a front page story. The crew trailed my colleagues and I throughout the day as it became clear that Donald Trump would be the next president of the United States. And it was not easy to be on camera that night, knowing I had been wrong. The producers concluded the filming around 2 a.m., asking me how I felt. And I told them while I had cast my own personal vote for Hillary Clinton, President Trump was a much better story. Four years of his administration would be better for journalism. 
since then, my, my industry has been dismissed at the highest levels of government as an enemy of the people, as the opposition party. The Los Angeles Times was unapologetically shut out of a White House briefing. Every day, the press reports on something President Trump says, does, or tweets with breathless fervor. People react, as you might expect, based on their political leanings. Stories favorable to Trump get the thumbs up. Stories that paint the administration in an unflattering light are labeled fake news, and on and on. I'm sure to some of you spending your Sunday here, this cycle is both predictable and disheartening. People in the fake news camp find evidence each and every day of bias, and their social network reinforces their outrage. Anti-Trump news consumers say, I told you so. And their social networks reinforce their outrage. Alternative facts are spread by both sides. All the while, Trump supporters are more and more convinced and committed to their man, and opponents haven't wavered either. And I like to think that journalism in all of this is not only doing a crucial public service, but is making America smarter and more informed. I would like to, but let's get real. Because unfortunately, there is still a whole lot of histrionics on both sides, on all sides. Panel after panel of pundits, a whole lot of talking at one another instead of educating. And that's not to say there isn't good work being done. I will point you, of course, I'm biased, but the LA Times, uh, we've been doing extraordinary work. Today on the front page, a story about how conservatives in Hollywood are sort of reacting to the Trump era and that they had to be in hiding and, and how do they handle that now? Excellent piece. Then there's a piece that we did from the border, looking at all of the companies that are lining up to actually build the border wall that Donald Trump has said he wanted to build, even, you know, forget who pays for it, people that want to be involved in this major construction project. And my team's coverage of how California is really shaping up to be a foil of the Trump administration in many ways similar to how Texas was a foyer to President Obama. The Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, the Wall Street Journal, and many others are doing exemplary work right now. Subscriptions to the New York Times jumped 41,000 after the election. They have had a quarter of a million in new digital subscribers since. The LA Times had a 60% increase in new signups following Trump's victory. In the 10 days after Trump's inauguration, we had a historic jump in digital subscriptions. 87% more than our 2016 weekly average. That's good news for this industry. After we were excluded from the White House briefing, we started selling t-shirts that read, we will not shut up. And speaking truth to power since 1881. That one's just 1895, that's my favorite actually. In just a few days, we sold $14,000 worth of merchandise and we also sold subscriptions tied to these t-shirts. That's a good thing. Journalists had been the most hated profession for a while, one of them. Now, we have stockbrokers in Congress just below us. The public is on our side at the moment, and this is an opportunity that we should not squander. We have people sending pizza to the newsroom to thank us for our commitment to journalism that matters. And that's great, but it's not enough. The truth is, there is a definite state of unrest in newsrooms. Across the country, we've seen traditional newspaper outlets disrupted by the internet. They're struggling to adapt. 
We continue to face the same financial challenges that have plagued our industry for two decades and now have the President of the United States and his advisors attacking us. Part of it, as it has been reported, is that Trump seems to be taking and enjoying taking a bit of a victory lap for proving a bunch of know-it-alls in the political professional class wrong. Trump won in part by defying all of the traditional notions about electoral politics, the things candidates should do, the rules about who wins and how, things you should say, the things pundits could confidently state about the path to the presidency. Here was a candidate who had not spent a single dollar on a television ad for the entire first year of the primary. Anti-Trump forces spent $55 million against him in that primary, and they lost, not to mention the general election. He had 12.8 million Twitter followers. Now he has 26.4 million Twitter followers. This is someone who entered the campaign with a near universal name recognition, who had reached people in all sorts of mediums that had no crossover with politics. So that left an elite group of people who profit off politics and political journalism in Washington, New York, other big cities, that left them feeling threatened. It can be an uncomfortable feeling because politics is generally fairly predictable. So how can I throw around these claims? Well, I'm a bit of a Washington insider myself. Before moving back to California to run politics for the Los Angeles Times, I spent 13 years in DC writing about politics, covering Congress under both Democratic and Republican majorities. I went to Vice President Joe Biden's Christmas parties. I traveled with President Obama on three continents while covering the White House. I've hiked the Southwest Virginia mountains with Tim Kaine and done yoga with Ohio Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan, who challenged Nancy Pelosi this year. I've run races alongside Tom Cotton, and I've trash-talked with Congresswoman Martha Roby of Alabama during the Congressional Women's Softball game that I used to play in before I moved out here. I've had dinner with Eric Hanner and Barack Obama, and I have exchanged emails with Newt Gingrich about his political terrorism novel. And you know, working in Washington is not really like an episode of House of Cards, at least not all the time. And it's funny now that I live in LA because people have this notion of Washington. You know, they think it's stuffy and boring and has terrible weather. And really, now that I think about it, they're mostly right, you know, as they're preparing for a big snowstorm in DC today. Um, but working in LA isn't exactly like an episode of The Real Housewives either. Um, although I did meet a woman at a dinner party once who was a doggy fashion consultant or canine makeover specialist, one or the other. And either way, she could help you realign your pet's chakra if you need it. Uh, but over the dozen years in D.C., as I reported on these different majorities, different people in the White House, uh, different campaigns, I traveled through 26 states and Europe. I became an early adopter of Twitter as a method of storytelling, and I was one of those pundits who appear on television, still am, uh, when I'm not on maternity leave. And while working for newspapers, blogs, and the political television show, PBS NewsHour, as the political producer for that show, I have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and that is just on Wednesdays. I have worked on both the left and the right, and I have made my home right in the middle. I value transparency in journalism above all else, and I take the trust that everyday people place in reporters and the unfortunate erosion of that trust as my industry overhypes and sensationalizes many, many things. I take that very seriously. And 
Why write about politics? I happen to think it's important. The action or inaction in Washington has ripple effects across the planet. Markets rise and fall, wars are started and ended, local and state budgets are slashed or expanded, highways are built or stuck in limbo, people's lives are dramatically affected. And that's why I get excited about the task at hand, because for all of the gamesmanship and all of the horse race, elections matter, voting matters. I'm a political journalist because I want people to understand what their government is doing, to get a sense of the human beings making major decisions, and to show them why participating in the election process is critical to a strong democracy. And that goes along with the importance of a free press to a strong democracy. So that's my belief system, and that hasn't changed in this new era of a Twitter presidency. But given all that, and given the fact that I did talks like this during the course of the campaign, predicting a Clinton victory, and saying that I was at least open to the possibility that Trump could win, no matter how remote, how did I manage to be wrong? Well, I've won office pools. I won the Washington Post crystal ball contest in 2012, where they have political journalists predict uh, who would win certain congressional seats and, and the presidency. In 2008, I was the only person in my newsroom to accurately predict that Barack Obama would win Virginia, the first Democrat to do so since 1964. But what I had told people repeatedly from the beginning of the campaign was that the electoral college system favors Democrats because of demographic change. I had a Hillary Clinton pollster talk to me about Florida and the number of different types of people that were moving there, saying that if Hillary Clinton won the same percentage of the white vote in Florida that Barack Obama had won in 2012, she would become president in a landslide. I would look at the 2004 election, and really John Kerry would have been president against a wartime president who was fairly popular, save not for a few hundred thousand votes in Ohio. I talked about the importance of demographics, but what we now know is that Clinton underperformed in some of the strongest blue states, Minnesota, Massachusetts, overperformed here in California, as we all know. And we now know that her Clinton, Clinton's team realized she probably should have campaigned in Wisconsin, that the Latino vote is not monolithic. We know that in Pennsylvania, a swing state cost uh, 20 electoral college votes to the Clinton campaign. There were less than 66,000 votes separating Trump and Clinton. And at the same time, nearly 200,000 people voted for third-party candidates, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein. Votes for others exceeded that margin in 13 states. So I used to tell people, well, you know, given all of this, think about how Reagan, he won in a landslide by winning 59, 56% of the white vote. And Mitt Romney lost fairly sizably by winning 59% of the white vote. So the obvious logic, as my political professional class would also say on television and other, way, other places, Donald Trump had to win an enormous share of the white vote. And doing so was unlikely. But in fact, we now know that Trump didn't actually increase the Republican share of the white vote. Instead, he changed the type of voter who voted Republican in this category. More white voters, 55%, who showed up on election day didn't go to college, leaving college-educated white voters the minority at less than 45%. And you know, when I talked about all of this before the campaign, I would always caveat it with, sure, he could win if all of these things I think matter turn out not to matter. 
And I can think of another time when the press had egg on its face. This is the June 2014 Republican primary in Virginia. At the time, we were putting the finishing touches on Roll Call's front page. I was the editor there. This is a newspaper that covers Congress and congressional campaigns. The only mention of Eric Cantor anywhere was a pre-written 150-word blog post that just said, you know, Cantor easily defeats his challenger. That's what we were prepared to publish. But that didn't happen because Eric Cantor lost his race, and no one had predicted that would happen. It wasn't quite a stop the presses moment, although it was pretty exciting as the editor. You know, we called our printer. We said we're going to miss deadline. We shredded the front page that we had already, you know, just finishing. We chose this dramatic photo of Cantor and a giant headline, 101 point font, stunner. He was the first majority leader in history to lose his position in a primary since the position was created in 1899. And that night in our newsroom was actually a good example of how things have changed in the media landscape, even over the course of my career. Over two hours, I wrote a broad story for the next day's print edition, and I was taking in feeds from a dozen of our journalists that were out and about in Washington, doing dispatches from down in Virginia, and reaction from congressional leaders, and we posted 18 different stories at rollcall.com while I was writing this one print story. But writing words wasn't the only thing we were doing. I was actually sitting in front of our television camera in the newsroom giving Chris Hayes live updates on his show on MSNBC while tweeting updates from my laptop in my lap. Uh, so this, it was a, a bit uh, hectic, but that is journalism, right? And in the middle of all the hullabaloo, I got this text message from my then fiance. He's Australian, and he was traveling in Bolivia. And he was trying to find me because in all of the commotion I had missed, we had a Skype appointment, and I was many hours past when I thought I would be home from work. So I quickly fired off a response saying, I'm sorry, I'd have to talk to him tomorrow. The majority leader had just lost and caught everybody off guard. And I found out later that in a bit of a lost in translation moment, Patrick had told people in that bar in La Paz, oh my god, if there are Americans here, John Boehner just lost his seat. <laughs> um, this is how rumors get started, and uh, he certainly knows who the Speaker of the House is now. And Patrick, now my husband, would be the first one to tell you that I hate being wrong. But I do like surprises, and one of the reasons I loved that night in the newsroom is because the moment Cantor lost was a very powerful reminder of the importance of voting. Every one, every district, they matter. People can organize and force change. I use that example all the time when people tell me that, especially in California, they don't feel like their voices count. This is something critical to why I do what I do, and it's one of my pet peeves when people don't show up. And I say, when you feel like your voice doesn't count, tell that to Eric Cantor. He lost by 7,212 votes. That's less than 1% of the 733,000 population of Virginia's 7th Congressional District. And tell that to John Boehner, who later was forced to leave Congress earlier than planned because of people like Dave Bratt, who had defeated Eric Cantor. He felt the speaker was too liberal. Or tell it to California's Kevin McCarthy, you know, right here. He was cruising to the speakership himself until the most conservative lawmakers derailed his ascendancy because of what they were hearing from a small group of people who had organized. Speaker Paul Ryan is third in line to the presidency today, thanks to the 7,212 people who completely upended the congressional leadership and changed the course of history. But surprises like this are rare, and President Trump is perhaps the biggest surprise in my nearly 20 years in journalism. 
But it kind of sounds like he might have had an idea this was coming, or at least possible. In 2015, September, he was on Jimmy Fallon, and he said, my Twitter account is like owning the New York Times without the losses. He also said, in 140 characters, you can knock somebody out. Now, during the campaign, Donald Trump actually liked the Los Angeles Times. Uh, he used to cite, if any of you have heard of this, the Daybreak poll that we put on with USC. And this poll was what they call an outlier among national polls. You would see every single other poll, which show Hillary Clinton winning by seven, eight, maybe at the national level, in some cases 20 at the national level. In our poll, Trump was either winning slightly or in some cases winning by eight points. It, fluctuated a little bit, but it was always very strong for him. And we were mocked. People said that it was inaccurate. Um, it was not a good situation for uh, this poll that was really an experiment. I like to call it more of a large focus group where we were going back to the same pool of voters and asking them every day, will you vote? If so, who will you vote for? And how confident are you in that vote? Now, that as they pooled day after day after day throughout the entire time, what is really a tracking poll, we got a sense that actually there's a lot of strong Trump supporters. Some of the people most likely to show up were the people who were most confident in their vote and they were voting for Donald Trump. So our final national forecast of the daybreak poll had Trump winning 47% to 44%. People then said, oh, Donald Trump just became president, the LA Times has vindicated you guys were right. I mean, we weren't actually right. You know, in reality, he lost the national vote, 48% to 46%. So that made our poll actually less accurate than some of the other surveys. But it did correctly forecast who won the presidency. It showed that Trump had a great appeal to disaffected white voters, many of whom had sat out the 2012 election. It showed voters who were the most likely to vote just felt like they had to agitate for change. But it seemed wrong when everything else had showed Clinton, and we found out later, the pollsters went and did a forensic assessment, and they found out why. The poll sample had actually a high, too high of a share of rural white voters, rural voters in general. Uh, many of them happened to be white. And that's in part because of the way the zip codes were used to code the people who participated in the poll. It was an error, but it actually ended up being a lucky one. It amplified the impact of Trump in this campaign, and this ended up delivering him the victory. So... <laughs> Most days, President lumps us in with all the other fake news, right? Uh, or the other groups that he labels fake news. And this term resonates because so many people assume the press is liberal. So why is that? I've thought a lot about this, and I think let's just start from one of the very basics. Endorsements from editorial boards. You hear this, you know, the LA Times endorsed Hillary Clinton. The New York Times endorsed Hillary Clinton. A paper here in Santa Barbara endorsed Donald Trump. We're not doing any favors by using these terms because I know what that means. I've worked in newspapers for a long time. Many of you maybe have met with editorial boards or understand what an editorial board is, but really it's an antiquated term and it doesn't quite explain the difference. People here, the LA Times endorsed Hillary Clinton and then they meet me or one of my reporters out on the campaign trail and they just assume you endorsed Hillary Clinton, right? There's a distinction. There's an actual thing called an editorial board made up of 
people who are not reporters. They are not part of the newsroom in the same way. At the LA Times, at the time we made the endorsement, we were actually on two different floors in the building. Generally, we're not even allowed in the room when the candidates come in for editorial board meetings. But we don't tell anyone that. We don't explain that. There's not really a distinction. And in fact, the page on which editorials run, if you are familiar with print newspapers, you turn, it's usually the, the inside page or the back of the A section. My name's on that page, right? Because the masthead is printed at the bottom. So that might make someone think that that's part of the endorsement. But I actually have nothing to do with it because that's the op-ed section. The editorial board is made up of a totally different group of people. It's confusing to people who are already believing that they don't like the way the press covers a lot of things. And you've probably heard journalists donate more to Democratic candidates in elections, right? So here's an actual stat from the 2016 presidential election, and I love this. So it's people who are identified in federal campaign finance filings as journalists, reporters, news editors, or television news anchors. So when you hear this stat, the really huge statistics, oftentimes it's being lumped as the media, and that could include everybody from the person selling you a subscription on the phone to the receptionist in the publisher's office to the, one of the drivers, right? It's very broad. But this is very specifically looking at you know, practitioners of news as journalists. So of working journalists, 96% of that group that contributed gave to Hillary Clinton. $380,000 in total. $14,000 of their total went to Trump. Now that's a drop in the bucket when you think there was a billion dollars spent just through April last year, not even counting the general election. But here's the important context for me. This is 430 people in a nation of roughly 30,000 journalists. But again, when you have this perception out there already, People don't necessarily understand that. They don't go seek that context out because it's something that reinforces something they already feel. Journalists are liberal. That's what they think. And think about the makeup of newsrooms, right? The, the Los Angeles Times is proud to have one of the most diverse newsrooms in the country. That shirt, you know, the We Will Not Shut Up shirt, it's printed in 13 different languages that are spoken by our staff in the newsroom. The staff actually looks like Los Angeles. And I've spent a lot of time over the course of my career working to advance female and minority journalists to make newsrooms more diverse. I was vice president of the Washington Press Club Foundation with this goal. I think it's critical, though, after observing this in Washington, D.C., to break out of this hiring pattern I saw there. Ivy League educated people from what we call the Acela Corridor, roughly from D.C. to Boston, where you can take the Acela train who mostly come from middle and upper class backgrounds. Think about that old vision of journalists that you saw, even you know, the Watergate era. This is you know, a badly dressed old white guy with a flask in his desk. That person probably was working class themselves, definitely had working class parents. That has faded. This is a different kind of breed of journalist right now. And not even talking about the digital revolution, what that's done. People are younger, they are better educated, and they tend to be from some of the same places. At the same time, newspapers are contracting, there's less hiring, so it's a smaller pool of people. The top people keep getting promoted to the other papers, and you end up having, you know, we don't have necessarily people who work in the heartland or who grew up in the heartland or evangelical Christians on our staff. They're not getting hired in Los Angeles because the pool of hiring is smaller. 
And, you know, think about this, too. One of the reasons the press is considered liberal, think about the pool of people in it. A lot of journalists are attracted to the profession for idealism. They want to make the world a better place. It's not all that different for the reasons uh, somebody might be attracted to the nursing profession, right? Um, I think that everybody would benefit from broader diversity of thought, diversity of background, not just what people look like. But think about this last election, right? A lot of people did vote. Um, the, Lo the Los Angeles Times has a policy. Uh, we talk about it extensively internally, but we don't communicate it with everybody else, right? You, you don't donate to political campaigns. You don't participate in political events. You don't express political opinion on your social networks. And for me, I consider Facebook page a social network, even if it's private, right? Anything you're putting out there, people know that you work for our organization. You know, that's you're putting a political opinion out there. And that can be difficult for some people, and it can be particularly difficult for a public that is, again, seeing bias in the media when they don't understand that. They don't know that that policy is out there. I mean, if we're contacted, we will tell people that, but it doesn't necessarily get out into the mass understanding. And then you have things like the Women's March. There were members of our staff who had nothing to do with political journalism who wanted to participate. You know, they're women. It's not necessarily a political thing. They're not giving to a candidate. Maybe they just wanted to go and walk with their friends in the Women's March in L.A. Well, that's, that's different. And we told people, you know what, you shouldn't do that. It's a political statement. But it's hard. You know, what if you're a science writer? You know, what if you work covering celebrities on television? Well, now... Our newsroom has one of the stricter policies. It's just across the board. You shouldn't do it. Thank you for asking. Here's our clarification. But again, it's not something that we put out there widely. And then you get into the questions of your own sort of Twitter habits. Is it biased if you retweet a story that is unflattering to a Republican? Well, if you haven't retweeted stories that are equally unflattering to Democrats, maybe it is. This is a conversation that we've actually had in our newsroom. And it is not an easy one to answer because there's a certain way you communicate on social media, a certain language, a certain snark that a lot of reporters fit right in on, and oftentimes that can tend to be seeming like it's more snarky toward President Trump or then-candidate Trump. Then there's people that take this even further to the extreme. There are journalists I know who don't vote. I'm not one of them. I've always felt, well, not only is this fundamental to why I do what I do, and I believe in the power of voting, and I recognize that people fought for my right to vote, and in general, voting is critical to a strong democracy, I also believe I'm closer to a lot of these things than a lot of other people. I have the privilege of having met some of these people, so I'm like one of the more informed voters out there. Like I should be able to exercise that. On Tuesday, I took my two-month-old son with me to vote in LA's municipal elections. In fact, this is very sad, a record low of less than 12% of people participated. But um, that's how important I think it is. And I talk about this openly. I'm not afraid to talk about my voting because I fundamentally believe it hasn't affected what I do. But I was just on a panel this week. There's a Comedy Central show that's coming out, and they did a, a talk about fake news um, as like a pilot in L.A., and the person I was on the panel with gave me grief about that. Oh, well, you know, if you vote and you're voting for one party or another, like clearly you're very biased. And I've thought a lot about this because this is what I think, this is where transparency comes into play. You know, would it calm people's nerves if I or another reporter put at the end of a story, um, I voted for so-and-so, or my husband 
uh, went to the Women's March. That didn't happen. But just throwing out examples, like that sort of transparency, would that make a difference? Would that make people feel more comfortable? And I, I sort of feel like when it comes to journalism, you just need to be careful in what you do, right? I will tell journalists, show, don't tell. You don't need to put an adjective in front of something. Do you need to say bombastic Donald Trump? Well, you can explain what happened, and if the reader interprets what it came across as bombastic, that's probably better than calling him bombastic, right? And that just gives people fuel for saying, oh, you're using these words that label somebody, and that makes you liberal or that makes you biased. At the news hour, we used to have our producers do pre-interviews of guests, and one of the things that we would screen out or at least be very aware of when we had guests come on when somebody said, I think blank, right? The point is not what you think if you're an expert coming on to talk about a political issue. The point is what you know, what you have learned, what you can bring to the table, how you can educate people. And you know, I'm a huge fan of the PBS NewsHour. I spent two, two years there, and some people will call it boring news, but it really is responsible. And it's those little differences. You might be watchers of it. You might never notice that the guests rarely say, I think blank. That's very different when you turn on some cable news and it's just pundits about what they think about something. And that helps to restore that trust. I also tell journalists, always ask one more question. Put yourself in the shoes of someone who you're not like. Think like somebody in the heartland would think. Um, think about what they would ask. What would they want to know? And then don't blindly trust what people tell you, because particularly in politics, someone telling you information that might then end up in a news story generally and probably has some sort of an agenda. It might be a benign one, but you have to keep that in mind. So you want to talk to as many people as possible. You also want to record everything. I mean, the, one of the biggest ways that journalists can get into trouble is somebody said, well, I didn't say that. Well, if you have a recording of it, you can then not only say, yes, you did, but you can post that on the internet in the new digital age. And then most importantly, it's about context. So an example just from this morning, there was a big story in the Washington Post about Steve Bannon, one of Trump's advisors in the White House, and um, did he commit voter fraud because he lived in all of these different places? I'm very shortening this, but in general, I was saying he had all these different addresses, nobody was clear where he lived, where did he vote, wasn't voter fraud. Miami Herald has this interesting context saying, you know, one, this investigation that is looking into this, in Florida, things are notoriously slow to be closed out, right? An investigation might lead nowhere, but it takes a really long time. And the, the Herald writes, um, Bannon never actually voted in Florida, right? That is important context that should be out there. And instead, you might go on your Facebook feed and see lots of people sharing this and maybe even share it without reading the story yourself. And then you're perpetuating something that doesn't have as much context from the get-go. And this is one reason why I actually am a big fan of partisan media. As I mentioned, I've worked for organizations considered both on the left and the right. I worked for the Washington Times when I first got to Washington. It is considered a right-leaning newspaper. It has a very right-leaning editorial board. See my comments from a few minutes ago. Uh, they endorsed John McCain when I was covering Barack Obama as the lead reporter for the Democratic campaigns at the time. And it's... It's a transparency issue. I used to tell my sources when I was talking to Democrats when I worked there, hey, 
I'm not planning to retire at this newspaper. I've moved here from California. I'm getting my start covering politics in Washington. So it's in my best interest to treat you fairly so that you'll still talk to me when I work somewhere else. And actually, that kind of worked. I happen to think it's because I'm a good journalist, too, and I was reporting fairly. But that philosophy is important. Then I also went and worked for Talking Points Memo, considered one of the more liberal organizations uh, out there. And at the time, TPM had been dismissed quite a bit, but then Josh Marshall uncovered the firings of the district attorneys, which seem a lot more relevant in the last couple of days, um, in the Bush administration. And then suddenly, this one guy's blog became much more well-established. They brought on somebody that had been a reporter in Washington to help open the Washington Bureau. And again, we got the same sort of skepticism. Oh, you're partisan. You know, my sense is that's how consumers of news media are starting to turn anyway. So when you can be a partisan news organization and people know where you're coming from, they know what they're going to get. And that goes for Breitbart, too. Um, People shouldn't necessarily dismiss them because they suddenly have a window into the White House. They know more people in the White House than any journalists that I work with at this point. Um, But you have to be very skeptical of everything that you read. Um, or consume watching. So I did think it makes sense to have a couple of tips. How do you spot, you know, fake news? How do you sort out the fact from fiction? So the other day there was um, a story that Kellyanne Conway, who is one of the advisors to President Trump, they had decided she shouldn't do as much television as she's doing. And there were various degrees of reporting on this. She said she was just kind of taking a break. She had some things to do with her family. But she had said some unflattering things on television. Did they ask her to cool off a little bit? The headlines, two different headlines. White House finally gives Kellyanne Conway the boot. Are you glad? And White House just gave Kellyanne Conway the boot. Prepare to be infuriated. So the interesting thing about those two headlines is they were both published by American News LLC, a company that profits from bifurcating the American people, right? They had the exact same photo, and it was the exact same story, which was kind of a summary of the other reporting out there. But they wanted to get that umbrage machine on the right and the umbrage machine on the left and get them in different ways and profit off of it. Because a lot of these sites that are, whether they're considered fake news or misleading news, uh, they've got the belly fat ads on them. They're making money from people coming to them, right? Then you have the sort of darker consequences, right? Um, Pizzagate, for example, and we can talk more about this if you'd like, but effectively, um, as a result of some WikiLeaks emails, John Podesta's emails that were out there, um, there was a rumor going around on a site that wasn't even a news site. It was just some people reading these, and there had been coded messages, there was a child sex ring going on. That led to a man from North Carolina walking into a popular restaurant in Washington, D.C., with an AR-15 style rifle and firing three shots. He said he was self-investigating. These are scary times, and like that story illustrates this is not a trivial debate right now. But here's what you can do. I mean, I before you wonder, why don't you cover X? Um, I get that people ask me that all the time. Oh, you never write about healthcare policy. Well, you might not find it on the homepage, right? Because people who build digital websites, they're responding to what readers are clicking on. And readers will always click. I mean, we had a notorious BIG story this week. Like, that was definitely one of the more trafficked. Um, People will click on the most sensational thing. Um, It's not that different from when I worked in Palo Alto for a man named Dave Price. used to always say that he would do focus groups with citizens in the community. 
And he would ask them, okay, what do you like to read? And they would say, we like nice stories about education. We want to learn things. We, we hate all these stories about crime. And then he would leave them in the room and, of course, like see what they gravitated to. And it was always the crime story and the sensational story and the gossip. But people say they want those things. Well, so the first thing is if you do want them, go look for them. They might be harder to find. And that's an issue that my industry is wrestling with, right? You shouldn't have to go to education news today to get some education news. You should be able to go and very easily navigate a website uh, and find you know, your healthcare news that you're looking for. But chances are it's there, especially with an organization like the LA Times and the New York Times. We cover a lot of things. You just might not see it on the front page. You just might not see it on the homepage that day because it's not the thing that people are reading. And the sort of digital version of Dave Price's focus groups that he used to just sit behind a mirror and watch people is we have metrics for this. We know, you know, when I worked at Talking Points Memo, it was always kind of funny. They hired me knowing that I had great Republican sources coming from the Washington Times. And the stories I would write, you know, very nuanced, interesting about Republicans, nobody would read because the TPM audience was coming there and they wanted to read, you know, Sarah Palin said something nutty and that would be the story that took off. It's the same idea. We can see what people are responding to. We can see how far they read down in a story. And it is at times disheartening about the American media consumer. They don't read beyond the first two paragraphs of a story sometimes. Many times they don't even do that. They, we can tell when people share a story without opening it. So that's, that's a challenge. That's a challenge for everyone. I also tell people to actually read the stories before they react to them, before they share them on their Facebook page. Uh, that doesn't always happen. It's very easy to just be outraged by a headline and say, oh, look at this thing that's aggrieved me today. Okay, go read it. And then maybe decide what the issue is and then go look at the other side, right? If you've got this from an organization that maybe you agree with or that is on one side or the other, go seek out the other side. I was thinking if I could tell Facebook to invent one thing, it would be a button that would say, you know, click on this and show me everything in the newsfeed of someone that has zero friends in common with me, right? Because then you might actually start to see what other people see, because that's one of our problems. And that's something I'm sure there will be questions about. People are always asking about the role of our own networks and how we get into these very you know, funneled fields of vision when it comes to our news consumption. And, and then finally, if you read something that seems too outrageous to be true, just Google it because you might find immediately, it's, it's the equivalent of the kittens in the jars email. I don't know if you ever got those, right? Like, look, these kittens grew in the jars. No, if you Google that, like, you'll find Snopes immediately. It's not true. Sorry, great aunt Mildred, this email, you shouldn't be sharing this with people. It's not that different. And that's what I tell people. It, it, you have to take a little bit of personal responsibility there. And We'll see what happens. I mean, no matter what happens next or how the media is labeled, there's one thing that may not change at all because people don't have a whole lot of faith in Washington, right? Congress's unpopularity actually peaked during the partial government shutdown in the fall 2013. This is this big fight over health care. About the only good thing about that was that it sparked a local baby boom when the government shut down because all of the DC government workers were stuck at home for 16 days. Um, but when you watch what's happening now, it doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence that things will get better. We might still see gridlock, even though there's one party in power in Washington right now. There will be court fights. There will be procedural gambits that take really complicated, nuanced reporting to explain. 
about the types of votes you need in the Senate and these backroom um, ways that you can get reconciliation to do something with Obamacare, right? This will all tie up the process. It'll take a long time, and people are going to see, oh, look, these people aren't getting anything done either because Washington is broken. That's a topic for another speech one day. But in general, you might have guessed I'm a bit of an optimist, especially when it comes to politics, because I believe in a strong democracy and that there's going to be a breaking point where it can't get any more polarized. The pendulum always finds a way to swing back. And I also see hope because for all of the inaction in Washington, there are still a lot of people there who are trying to make our great nation even greater. And will that get any attention? I mean, I'm the first to acknowledge that the media doesn't make it any easier. We reward hot rhetoric. We uh, do 24-7 cable coverage of things that have nothing to do with the reason public servants step up to begin with, improve the lives of everyday people. And to that, I say we can all do better. It starts with voting and getting involved, telling the powerful about things you care about, and if you're paying attention, you can force change. You can also demand a better media. And I promise I will keep doing my part to try and elevate the conversation. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, more and more of the, the serious journalistic pieces I see have a, like a philanthropic funded partner. Like this morning on your newspaper, there was an article that was done in partnership with the Marshall Project, and I've seen ProPublica is another. Can you talk about that trend and where you think that's going? Yeah, uh, it's a really good question, and it's the LA Times is the biggest news outlet I've worked for, and they have the highest vetting standards of any outlet I've ever experienced, just of who you will partner with, what kind of scrutiny it goes with. I'm not involved in the Marshall Project one, but we do one with Cal Access that uh, we're looking at the pension crisis in California. Um, so, like the political team and the Metro team at the LA Times is working with um, Cal Access reporters and. Um, and a couple of public radio stations in like this big partnership to examine this and um Cal Matters, not Cal Access. Sorry, I misstated that. But but so those types of partnerships, they go through all sorts of levels of scrutiny. Editors on both sides, you know, you really make sure you have a clear mission that you've communicated to readers. You make sure that you're sort of taking a really long time with the project and doing enough research. And it is more and more, you also see, like at the News Hour, we did grant-funded projects. So maybe the, um, the Gates Foundation would say, okay, we want to report on um, drought in Africa. And so that they might give 500 grand, and then you would go and report on um, those things in collaboration with them. So does that bias the work, right? It's a good question. We also, we did a series right before I got there looking at uh, the oil industry, and I forget who we were partnered with on that one, but it was like, there were a lot of questions about like, is this the right thing? And at the same time, you take advertising, you know, if, if Exxon wants to advertise. You, so you have to sort of look at what are the motivations behind that. And I think that's, again, where transparency is the best way to explain, okay, this is what the Marshall Project is or any other partner. These are our goals. These are the people working on it. And we try to do that, but oftentimes it's harder to find. You're not necessarily going to find that in the headline or on the front page. It's, you're going to have to go looking for it, and it's going to be in small font at the bottom of a, a story. Looks like we have one last question. Well, in part, I think that, first of all, thank you very much. It's, it was really informative, and I'm trying to learn as much as I can about this everything that's going on so I can feel a little bit of the weight off of my shoulders. So, um, in part, you might have answered it with regards to your philanthropic pursuits or partnerships. 
but how does that apply then to your the readership or the let me let me write it this is what I wrote when does business such as the media which is what you said that you are have an ethical or moral responsibility if there's an actual difference to the American people and are they obligated at all to protect the general welfare of its readership and beyond and if so in what way other than that you you know that you're able to say uh, this is how I know and you can support it with something such as like I'm sorry um, Trump who says that he's been wiretapped by Obama administration or by Obama and we're asking, can you please produce the evidence? So I think that, that you have to have that responsibility, but I'd like you to expound on it for me so I understand better. Sure. Uh, well, so, and again, just to, the sort of opinion of this is what you should think, these are the people you should vote for, that's done by the editorial board and not by the journalists in the newsroom. But people ask this all the time. Well, shouldn't you be, isn't it the, you know, majority of our readers are liberal. They live in Los Angeles, right? The California you know, voted for Hillary Clinton by a huge margin. So that's the majority of what people who are consuming us, at least in print, for sure, that's how they feel. So we'll have people say to us, like, why aren't you saying blankety-blank is dangerous or that this is terrible? Our allegiance is to the truth. And if it turns out that that truth is the thing that liberals are happy with or that liberals want exposed, that's going to all shake out, right? We have to think of it because there is going to be corruption and problems and things that we should report on and things that are underreported, no matter who is in charge where. And so we have to fundamentally say, great journalism matters, and we will go to no ends to find the truth, no matter who we have to talk to or if you have to ask 25 more questions. That is the important thing here, and um, it is really easy to lose sight of that with all the noise, and that is just, you know, if you keep our mission on that, and that is fundamentally what we believe in our newsroom, and I believe most newsrooms believe that as well. You have your allegiance to the truth, and it'll all work out from there. Hello. Of course. One for you. <laughs> nice to see you. Thank you very much. And thank you, Barrett. This timely um, to the CAP Center for and your combination with such a timely topic. I, you acknowledge voting for Hillary Clinton. And in that political context, who, who do you see as the next round of leadership oh nationally? I watched with interest, as many of us did, the leadership in the DNC. Sure. Um, but there's kind of a, oh, wow, what do we do now? You know, and so for me, like what I think personally isn't, it doesn't matter. I think that one thing you have seen happen, particularly in Congress, is that there is a generational divide between leaders. And on the Democratic Party, its leaders, you know, the top three people in the Democratic Party, well, now Harry Reid is retired, but, you know, we're over 70 and that is not the next generation of leadership, right? We know that people who are in their early 40s are probably the next minority leader or majority leader. You know, and there are a lot of people agitating for that. I mean, I, I mentioned at the outset, I know Congressman Ryan, who challenged Nancy Pelosi well, and like he and I have talked about this. Like there are people that have been in Congress for a while and they want to see change. They don't necessarily like the way the old guard is doing it and they want to do something different. And Congress is also changing in its makeup. Many of the younger members, they have families, they're paying student loans, they know what it's like to have you know, tough jobs and things like that in the way that 
not ascribing to any particular person, but the older generation of members of Congress, you know, a few decades ago when you got to Congress, this was because you had the time and the privilege and often the money and maybe you came from a political family and there was sort of a, a class structure that got you there. And the Tea Party was one of the reasons that that got upended. You know, you had small business owners and farmers and auctioneers making it to Congress and, and then people who sort of could better understand the plight of the working class because maybe they came from it or they were in it once. All of that said, you still need a lot of money to run for Congress. But so the Democratic Party leadership, where are they going? You know, Bernie Sanders, a lot of people really loved him. He does not represent necessarily the future in demographic, but his ideals were in line with a lot of young people's ideals. Young people are a huge growing segment of the population. Are they going to be a huge growing segment of the voting population? Right? That's critical. And that's something that leaders are looking at. Um, you know, so what do the Democrats do? I think that in general, people should be really listening to what you would do for the country. It should be that simple. It should be that easy. Yes, if you're telegenic, that's great. Yes, if you can command an audience, that's great. Yes, if you can get big rallies, that's great too. But you really need to understand the direction. And there, oftentimes that's hard because there's not that much of a difference between candidates in a primary. So that, that makes voters, they have their work cut out for them in this. And for the next generation of Democrats, there's going to be a lot of people clamoring to do it in 2020. And that's going to take a lot of money. And then you just insert all the same problems. When you have to raise money, then you end up coming from the same kind of class of people. Looks like one more. Thank you. Um, very interesting, but frustrating, because you talk about, I mean, this is a group of people that wants to know how we can communicate better. I think that's a fair statement. Uh, but it's, it's kind of like preaching to the choir. So we, had, we have now a president who was able to incredibly manipulate the media and continues to do so. We have serious problems in this country, and he comes out and says, um, uh, Barack Obama, um, uh, you know, was involved in wiretapping uh, the Trump Tower. Uh, no proof, no nothing, but that continues to be the story, and part of it is, I believe, as you indicated, because that sells. The dramatic sells, the hysterical sells. But what we need in this country, I think, is, as you pointed out, people need to be better educated about what's real and what isn't real. Mm -hmm. So given that we have people listening to different news, filtering it in different ways, uh, some people who are anxious for the truth, there are others whose truths will only be through their own lens. How do we penetrate that lens? I, I th Easy question. It, it's a... It is a great question. I think it is being done. I read five different news articles from different sources, both partisan and you know, nonpartisan large outlets, and they all pointed out that there was no evidence for what Trump had suggested, that he's been repeatedly asked for the evidence, that his staff has been asked for the evidence. So it's, it's not the top thing in the piece, but it's there. And I think just continuing to read as much as you can and to, um, you know, for us, we need to continue to ask. I, that's part of the sort of immediacy of oh, all. reporting it. If there is no shred, if I say something ridiculous, you will not report it. If I say something that is outrageous, you will ask me for evidence. And if there is no evidence, you will not report it. But yeah, that's so the, what is the yeah, I mean, this is a good question. Should you, there, there are people that argue, you know, if the president tweets something, should it be on the news at all? No. Um, and look, it is also easy to forget 
how often Barack Obama's tweets were covered, right? I, my most, most remembered thing when I covered the White House was the introduction of the White House dog, Bo Obama, when they orchestrated an entire press event to bring the dog out on the lawn and they let us all come out. That was how I got more Twitter followers and more views to my YouTube page because that's what people wanted to read. And so, yes, that's very different than the situation with wiretaps, but I'm using it as an example of there were coverage, there, there, were, there was coverage of Obama and his tweets, right? They're very different, and the content is different, and the timing is different, and there's all kinds of things that we rightly point out every single day that are untrue coming from the president, and I think that that's the obligation of everybody in the press. And you see Fox doing just as good of a job on real interviews. I'm not talking about the pundits and the panels, right? That's a different thing. When Chris Wallace gets out there on Sundays, he is asking the hard questions the same way he did of Democrats. And that's really important. And I think it is up to everyone to continue to support the news outlets that you see doing the good work, that are not talking about what they think, that are reporting facts, that are teaching you something. It's on all of us to do that. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.